Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined as always, actually in person this time, by Nizar Hassan. Yay, we're back to recording in hot weather and sweating because of, you know, no electricity and shit like that. Great to be here, Ben. Uh, yeah, yeah. Our, our our producer Susan is still away from us now, so so we're we're sort of like partially ending our uh, social distancing, but but not entirely. Uh, but but yeah, what you talk about the electricity? That is the huge story going on in Lebanon right now. Um, and uh, and and in case you haven't been following this, it's it's quite apparent if you live in Lebanon, the our electricity has dropped just precipitously. I mean, we, we never had full 24 hour electricity right but 21 hours which isn't too terrible right yeah. uh, um <laughs> and and now that's dropped you know uh by a whole lot depending on where you live uh but in beirut we have a whole lot more hours it depends on where you are in beirut uh it, it seems but you know uh i i can't quite tell because my building does have a generator that is on most of the time but not all of the time uh and and outside of beirut it's much worse uh as little as four hours a day in yeah. some parts of the country right so in beirut it's it probably you know double that or something like that uh but yeah we're, we're having huge problems because they don't have enough fuel essentially uh the imports have not come in it and the the situation is getting so much worse that edl you know they've been ratcheting down production and now they're rationing and everything but there's a certain level that you can't go below right if you're operating a power plant and if you do you just have to shut the entire plant down and so what we're hearing is that it's possible that we're recording this on sunday it's possible that today or tomorrow or sometime this week they could actually shut down all of the state electricity which means everybody in the country would be relying only on generators for their for their own electricity which also are running out of fuel and so it, it's it, it is a, a total mess Fuel is on the way, but it's not going to get here until like Monday or Tuesday. And then it takes some time to, you know, get cleared or tested and, and actually turned into electricity, right? And uh, the energy minister, uh, Raymond Gachar, he said that rationing, it's, it's going to remain until July 8th. Nazim Najim, uh, an MP with the Future Movement, who is also the head of the Energy Committee in Parliament, he said that things won't really return to normal until July 15th. So maybe we've got, you know, another week, another two weeks up ahead. So what what actually caused this is you'll remember a few a few months back that there was this whole scandal about the quality of fuel and having getting substandard fuel uh, from Sonatrack, the Algerian state-owned oil company. Mm -hmm. uh, well, apparently there was a disruption in the supplies. A lot of our fuel for electricity does come from uh, Sonatrack, and and that's somehow and I don't understand how I don't understand the specific specifics of this, but that somehow has resulted in them not ordering other fuel from other places or them not getting it or something going terribly wrong in the planning department uh, at the Department of Energy. Yeah, so like basically it's a problem of mismanagement, not a problem of, you know, shortage of dollars or whatever we're usually talking about. Uh, this is a, clearly a matter of how the state is managing this, uh, this issue. And despite that, though, it doesn't seem as though we're going to see any resignations from this, just, you know, even though the entire country is, you know, suffering through this and everybody is very, very unhappy with this. Uh, it doesn't seem as though there's going to be any actual political consequences for anyone. I mean, of course not. When did we have political consequences for anything? <laughs> resignations are, are foreign to our culture. We should reject them. Uh, 
<laughs> Although I, I will note that if the power does go out completely, which we're hoping it doesn't, but if it does do that, you know, today, tomorrow, then we could see, you know, much larger protests and there could be calls for actual consequences. And finally, even though this does seem like it's going to get resolved in the next couple of weeks, there's really no guarantee that this isn't going to happen again in the future, uh, which, which is something that I'm I'm more concerned about given the state of the dollar and given, you know, everything just keeps going wronger in worse ways. So are we going to be facing this in another month, another two months? I don't know. That's the exciting thing about living in Lebanon, right? You never know. It's like... <laughs> The, the future is always mysterious. It's always something to uh, to look forward to. Yeah, exactly. Very quickly, I want to note just the coronavirus update for the week. We, we had 136 uh, new cases this past week, um, which is better than the week before. Um, it's def definitely not like the record, like 200 or so cases uh, in a week that we saw back in mid-May, but it's still up there. It's still like the fourth or fifth highest week that we've had of, of new or new detected cases. Also, there have been two new deaths, bringing the total to 35. One really good thing, the testing is just up, up, up this week. You can see it beginning on June 30th, roughly 3,000 tests per day have been conducted. Now that's compared to the June average of 1,600. So it's almost like they just flipped a switch at the very end of June, beginning of July, and double the testing capacity. Hopefully that'll keep up but we'll have to wait and see. It, it's very good that they flipped this switch, of course, because the airport opened on the first, and uh, that means a lot more people are going to be coming into the country and not just Lebanese expats, but other people as well. All right, so the the big topic for this week, and we're going to devote, as you can see, like the, the majority of the program to this is uh, just as what has been going on financially and politically, especially because the two are very much interlinked. This past week, we have seen some really interesting developments. And it seems as though all of a sudden, Saad Hariri is rising from the ashes like a phoenix or something, right? Uh, it, it's this, we're, we're living in this weird world where October 17th almost never happened, you know? Yeah, indeed. I mean, Saad Hariri rising again, as you're saying, the bank is uh, seemingly having more legitimacy in the political scene. We'll be talking about that in a bit. All you see on the news is, you know, the same old fi financial oligarchy people speaking. It seems, as you're saying, as we as if we were back uh, before 17 October days. Um, but let's basically go into them piece by piece, and then we can draw the big picture. Yeah. So the the week started out with a bang, and that was Alain Bifani's resignation. Bifani had been the director general of finance for over 20 years. He was appointed on the 26th of April in 2000. Right. So. A very long time. He has served under 10 different finance ministers in 13 different governments. And he came out with this press conference on Monday that was very uh, startling in a lot of ways, I think. You know, he said that he had reached a dead end. Uh, he said that, uh, you know, we struggled to avoid the worst, but the forces of darkness and tyranny came together <laughs> to impede what we did. They fabricated accusations that we have grudges against the banking sector and that we are incompetent. This is all very, very strong language, kind of surprising coming coming from Alain Bifani, who is this very well-respected uh, bureaucrat who doesn't usually step into the uh, spotlight. Yeah, indeed. And if you look at, uh, at Bifani's, if you listen to Bifani's uh, press conference, you see actually that there are two very interesting things, in my opinion. One of them is that he was talking about the vested interests and the dark forces, as, you, as he called them. 
um, who are basically impeding any solution to the crisis, any equitable solution to the crisis. He said, you know, that uh, the, these interests are trying to uh, foil the government's plan to make it fail so that uh, they don't carry their responsibility or their part of the the, the, the price, you know, for the for the, the bill, basically, for this crisis. And who is he talking about here? He's talking about the banks. This is very straightforward. This is the only real economic interest in Lebanon today that is fighting the government's plan by trying to minimize its responsibility. And the second thing I found interesting is that he talked about things that are not usually talked about by Lebanese bureaucrats or officials, things like economic inequality, the distribution of wealth in bank accounts, and things that imply clearly that, you know, this is class warfare what's happening. Like they are trying to protect the interests of the large depositors and the banks on the expense of everyone else. And this is very significant because it also comes after uh, the resignation of Henri Shaul, who was an advisor to the government uh, and part of the negotiation team of the IMF, which also Bifani was part of, right? And Henri Shaul, when he um, when he resigned, he said almost the same thing that there is no serious will to restructure the banking sector and BDL. This was one of the main reasons that he mentioned for his resignation. Uh, and then in other comments made to media, he said that the 1% who controls most of the wealth is also trying to impoverish the rest of the population. So for these things to coming to be coming out of technocrats, right, out of advisors and bureaucrats, this is really uh, new. But this shows us what kind of real battle of interest is happening today. And the direction that that battle is going in, because these guys are the ones who are resigning and finally speaking out about this, meaning that they lost, basically. They're conceding at this point, I, I can't do anything further here. On the other side of things, the, the banks uh, made a couple of moves, banks, BDL, and other parties made a couple of moves this week. The banks, uh, or several banks, at the very least, raised uh, the dollar to lira rate. If you have a dollar account, Lebanese dollars, and you want to withdraw that in lira, they want you to do that. And now they're, they've, they've raised uh, the rate, I think it was at 3000 before, and now it is up to 3850 uh, so if you do have that, you know, you're going to get more lira. So you might as well. That's kind of the argument. Of course, this is sort of a slow motion lirification where if you do this, you are accepting a haircut on whatever you've got in a de facto haircut on whatever you have uh, deposited. Yeah, exactly. It's a haircut of around 50%, right? Because now the real exchange rate in the market has been, uh, the lira has been depreciating in, in value for most of last week and most of the recent weeks, right? From around 4,000 in mid-May to mid-June, now we've reached up to 10,000 on Thursday, and then it decreased a bit uh, uh, in, in the last few days, in the, basically the end of last week, uh, reaching down to around 8,000. And well, we don't know about that rate for sure, right? So uh, there, there is a question whether when the lira started coming back down after that Thursday high, that was almost 10K. Uh, well, okay, let's say it's 8,000. Can you actually buy dollars from that? Yeah, this is always the big question. Like yeah. you see all of these exchange rates and you don't see any places selling uh, right. dollars for that. Which rate. means basically the exchange shops are just trying to get more dollars. They're trying to get people to get rid of their dollars. We, we've seen this before. It, it, it's happened a we've couple of times. We've seen it a couple of times, exactly. Yeah. This seems like a cycle of the same stuff happening. But anyway, the point was that the, the lowest number the exchange rate has reached in the last few days is 8,000 or something around that, which means that uh, as we were saying, it's basically a 50% haircut when you withdraw your money from the bank at less than 4000 
Exactly. Um, and an, another important thing that happened this week is, you know, we're trying to get to the bottom of of what happened in Lebanon. And part of that is just doing a forensic audit of BDL in particular. Uh, and this is something that the, the government decided to do uh, several months ago, but they still haven't done it. And we're starting to understand exactly why. Uh, Tuesday's cabinet meeting, Finance Minister Ghaziwazni reportedly vetoed a forensic audit, saying, as reported by Al Jumhuri, the political forces that I belong to are clear in their preference not to put in place any forensic audit, and especially not by Kroll. Kroll is the company that they hired supposedly to do this. And supposedly this is because Kroll has ties to Israel. Uh, but there really isn't any evidence that I've seen that's that's been offered on this. You know, Kroll's parent company, Duffin Phelps, does have some Jewish executives because, you know, it's this huge, big, diverse global firm. Uh, but I mean, it also has Nicholas Sarkozy's half brother on the board, for instance, you know, to me, without like some sort of solid linking evidence, trying to discount Kroll just smacks of pure anti-Semitism. Just like, oh, this company was founded by somebody who's Jewish. It has executives who are Jewish. Therefore, uh, we can't trust them because they might be in league with the Zionists. That is extraordinarily racist, I think, and, and very un unenlightened. There's, there's a, a whole lot of uh, Jewish people on both sides, both pro-Israel and anti-Israel. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the versions I read was that you know the company has links to Israel. That sounds, you know, as you're saying something like uh, as if uh, Israel is controlling the company. And then another piece of news depicted it as this company does business with Israel, therefore Lebanon can't trust doing business with this company, which is a bit of a different argument, right? It's a it's it's the different framing means that you know. It's one thing to say that the company is like an Israeli spy and another thing to say that, you know, we will boycott all companies that work with Israel, which Lebanon officially has not, cannot do anyway and has not done, or maybe can do, but has not done so far. And a lot of companies that have huge businesses in Israel have business in Lebanon as well. So this is, what is clear is that this excuse is simply a scapegoat that uh, makes it look like uh, they are doing a patriotic thing. Meanwhile, the real issue is that they just don't want any forensic audit for the central bank. I don't care if it's this company or another company, as long as we have, you know, security figured out. But what we need is a forensic audit. And it's clear that this is what they are preventing. By the way, did you know that the founder of Kroll, Jules Kroll, is Nick Kroll's dad, the actor and the comedian? I had no idea. <laughs> it's, it, it's insane. But yes, it, it it's actually, if you don't know who Nick Kroll is, he's a... Uh, you know, uh, he, he's from uh, Oh Hello on Broadway and Big Mouth on Netflix and not John Mulaney. Not that one, the other <laughs> one. Uh, <laughs> I just thought every, everyone should know that. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, though. Uh, the fact that Wesney himself ruled out any, any forensic aud uh, audit, regardless of whether it's, you know, by Kroll or another firm, is a huge red flag. And it shows, you know, when he's talking about who his political reference is, while that's Nabi we all know that. And, and essentially, this also shows what we already knew or already suspected at very least, that this cabinet is not some sort of independent government or, or anything like that. No, they are still answering to the same people in power. Definitely. And uh, just to one more thing on the, the whole forensic audit thing, um, Henri Shaul, which we just mentioned, uh, who resigned, uh, he tweeted that this is purely political uh, and that Kroll, the, the same company, has worked before with many Lebanese banks 
uh, and he knows that because he has he's been he has worked with the, in one of the banks and it has worked already with BDL before so saying that uh, like portraying it as oh this is a new company that has uh, zionist links and we can't work with it is a divergence of the truth 100% uh, along with the lira slide this week we saw a lot of things getting a lot more expensive. On Tuesday, bread prices went up. The 900 gram pack of bread went from 1,500 lira to 2,000. And meat prices have been soaring, you know, basically more than doubling. Because of this, the army announced this week that it would no longer serve meat to, to Lebanese soldiers. Uh, so the Lebanese army has gone vegetarian. The <laughs> chicken, first... chicken is still oh, chicken. All right, all right. <laughs> chicken is still cheap because we <laughs> produce a lot of it locally. But yeah, most of the meat we use is actually imported. Uh, but the, but let's be, be clear on this. The, the meat issue and the bread issue are very different, right? Because meat is just following uh, exchange rate and because it's imported from outside and it's not subsidized while bread is subsidized. So the, the raise in prices was actually a governmental decision, right? A ministry decision by economy minister uh, Raoul Nami in order to answer the, the, the requests of the bakeries who last week were saying we're not going to sell any bread to the shops because the other costs of production, including sugar and plastic and everything else and the maintenance of the machines do not get subsidized by the government. Only the wheat itself gets subsidized. So they were saying we have to increase the price of the pack of bread uh, to cover these costs. And because of the bread lines that we saw the other, last week, etc., the government had to take a step, and this was the step to actually raise the cost of bread. All right, so the, I guess, big pivot point this week that happened was probably Eli Fersli going to Hariri's house. Eli Fersli is an MP from Western Ba'ar Shaya. He is the Deputy Speaker of Parliament. And he is a, a member of the FPM bloc, the Free Patriotic Movement's bloc, but not a member of the actual FPM party. Uh, Someone who's very close to the Syrian regime as well. We should always mention that. Right, right, right. Um, so he visited uh, Saad Hariri, the former prime minister, at the latter's downtown residence in Beirut. And he had some interesting things to say. It, he is now pushing for Hariri to come back as prime minister. We, we've seen more come out of this as well, since he sort of rung that bell, a, a lot of things have happened. Hariri's come out saying, you know, my conditions are known. Uh, it seems as though he's not ruling out coming. It seems as though he wants to come back as prime minister. Uh, it, uh, But it seems as though he's going to negotiate very hard before he agrees to do that. Yeah. And Hariri's uh, response when journalists asked him about that was that, Yes, conditions. And what are these conditions, right? When he when he's asked about these conditions and what they are, he says reform. Like if they if they agree to do the necessary reforms, then I'd be I can be back. Which is absolute bullshit, right? I mean, it's not I don't think Hariri out of all politicians in Lebanon is the one who is most careful about reforms or cautious about them. So a political deal to bring back Hariri is definitely something that Hariri has to agree agree to, and uh, it would be based on a new distribution of power within the government. So if that's the case, then we will see another round of negotiations, of very tiring negotiations, similar to the ones we saw before, with Jibran Basil trying to get one more minister and Hariri pushing back on that, and then everyone else participating in this game. This isn't the good. And, and just speaking very quickly about what those conditions may be as well. You remember what his conditions were the last time when he was being pushed out around, what was it, October 29th, I think, that he resigned on? He wanted at that point to form a technocratic government, but him, be the, him being the only politician at the head of the government and then a bunch of technocrats. Mm -hmm. 
So basically, Gibran Basile not being in the government. That's yes, the main that, that would be the big thing, right? And it seems as though, I mean, obviously that was a non-starter for Basile back then. My guess is that it's still a non-starter for them, uh, but but we'll see what happens. Uh, it seems as though there is a negotiation going on because uh, both Aoun and Basile have, uh, have responded in one way or another. Aoun reportedly said that he would not, under any circumstances, accept to sign the decree of a government led by Hariri because he would be signing the decree of his own tenure's end, uh, according to sources uh, quoted in Nidal Watham. Aoun also dispatched Salim Jrisati, a former minister, very, very close to him, uh, to Makati, reportedly, asking if Makati would be interesting. And Najib Makati, the, the former prime minister, uh, seeing if he would be interested to do that. Uh, Makati turned them down. Makati has been quite close to Hariri of late. I mean, clearly it would be a mistake for Makati to just jump out there and, and agree to this at this point. But you can see here, so Hariri is saying one thing, I'm not interested. And then the other side here, Alan is saying, I'm also not interested. This is clearly the beginning of a fruitful relationship, I think. <laughs> They're playing hard to get. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, just to just a note here that it's very interesting that Makati has been so close to Hariri in political positioning recently. He, as you said last week, he boycotted the Babda meeting, who, which was boycotted by Hariri and the previous former prime ministers, most of them. And he's been basically very critical of uh, Aoun and FPM. And uh, I don't know enough about uh, Miqati's politics and especially his business interests to understand why he's positioning himself so close to Hariri. But it might very well be related to uh, his actually business interests in the Gulf and in Lebanon, but specifically uh, in, in areas that require a positioning that is not approval of approving of Hezbollah's basically excessive power in the Lebanese government and uh, the current government, which is sponsored mainly by Hezbollah. Right. And, and so this was obviously a big political twist. But then I think at the very end of the week, we also had a couple of things that were uh, economic and political that sort of close the week out on on a different note. And uh, one of those is that BDL uh, once again promised to supply dollars for certain imports. Uh, this time they were a little bit more specific. Seems as though there will be dollars available for 280 different imports. Of course, you know, we've heard promises like this before. We've seen implementations of things before that didn't really go so well from BDL. So we're really going to have to wait and see if they actually roll this out properly and whether it's actually something that importers can can use and that is accessible because it's not clear right now that it actually will be. Also, at the end of the week, really to put the, uh, the cherry on top here, the IMF talks apparently have been put on hold. Al-Jumuri reported that Wazni was uh, saying that the IMF was waiting for Lebanon to implement reforms as soon as possible and and come to a united figure for the losses, which apparently they still haven't done, uh, before going forward with any further talks. But Wazni's office put out a statement that same day on Friday saying that the talks were still ongoing. But this is sort of a uh, semantic difference because the statement also just sort of reconfirmed that the fund has asked, you know, the Lebanese delegation to unify its numbers, speed up execution of reforms and stuff like that. So basically, it sounds like the talks are de facto on hold right now. And of course, this comes one week after IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva said that there had been no uh, no breakthrough in the talks. And before that, she had said that, you know, the, the talks are quote-unquote difficult and that 
and another official from the IMF was asked whether he agrees with the Yab's statement that the talks might take, you know, a month or so. And he said this is unlikely because they might be more, more difficult and longer to, to complete. So the IMF are clearly not very optimistic about the talks to Lebanon. And they're, uh, they're focusing recently, they've been focusing, as I think we mentioned last episode, on the issue of unity, meaning basically an agreement that the, the surface meaning of it is basically for the delegation of Lebanon to be on the same page when it comes to numbers. Because again, there's a division between the banks slash BDL and the government and its advisors. And this is being translated on the negotiation table with the IMF. Although two members of that negotiating team have now left. So who knows? One final thing that really uh, needs to be noted here, there have been in the past two days, three different suicides in Lebanon. Uh, there were two on Friday. Both of them have been linked uh, to the economic situation. Uh, one of them in Hamra, the other one down at Ilim al-Kharoub. And then another one on Saturday that I have not seen what whether that's linked to the economic situation or not. But Suffice it to say, this is having real consequences on the ground for lots of families. You know, they can't buy meat, they can't buy the the necessities that they need, and and now it is getting to a point where uh, some have lost hope entirely. Yeah, I mean, um, really, just from from a human perspective, now I don't think there's ever been a more depressing time in general. Like depression is just completely overwhelming is dominating the public sentiment in Lebanon. Everyone is feeling that there's absolutely no hope in things improving anytime soon. And when you when you take into consideration an exchange rate that has made people much poorer than before, I mean, we're not talking about like, you know, gradual change in people's well-being. We're talking about a sudden shock that turned people from middle class to poor within, you know, a few months. And uh, so many people are losing privileges that they or rights that they thought were self-evident before and this is not to talk about people who are already, or were already very poor before the crisis uh, people in rural areas refugees uh, migrant workers etc who had already been very uh, the situation had already been very volatile are now even an even harsher situation and the whole thing called the middle class especially in terms of public sector employees and those working in the private sector and earning in, in lira and all these people basically have been have done downward social mobility on incredible scale and even the data tells us so because from the from the household survey of 2018-2019 uh, 70% of households not not individuals make less than 2.4 million liras a month and now uh, at around 10,000 exchange rate 10,000 lira per dollar exchange rate this means that it will be 1.6 dollars per person per day which is literally below the the low poverty line so we're talking about extreme poverty hitting three quarters of the population while the crisis hasn't even fully manifested yet like we aren't we are yet to see like the full consequences of the crisis so this is an absolutely depressing time for for everyone and everyone needs to 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 basically know this that you know the desperation and hopelessness is all over the the country yeah 100 percent. so we we've gone through and sort of sketched out what happened during the week on both the political and economic fronts and 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 you'll remember like this is sort of a continuation of this fight between you know BDL and the banks on one side and the government on the other side. There was all this these questions sometimes of like, well, is Riyad Saleme gonna resign or is Hassan Diab gonna resign? Like it, at, at some point it seemed like one of the two of them need to resign. And it seems as though this past week has given Saleme the edge here. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's good to 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 basically start by uh, laying out what the interests of the banking establishment in Lebanon is today, right? Because Salami is literally just a representative of an, a, a very important actor, but also a representative of the bank's interests. Over the years, we have seen that very clearly that, you know, he's on the side of the banks and he is in partnership with them. And uh, the, what what is the real interest of the banks today? There are two uh, main areas in which they have very, very clear interests. One of them is the financial and economic side. What will be done in terms of policy? The banks have rejected the government's plan, clearly. Uh, because of the distribution of losses, the, who will pay for the losses. And the banks feel that they are uh, being asked to pay too much and uh, that the, the debt they are owed by the state should be paid back and should not be cancelled. As you expect from a lobby of capitalists, they are doing this this lobbying work uh, and uh, they propose their own plan, which differs from the governance plan mainly in these things, in the estimation of the losses, the whole battle of numbers, and uh, in the the policies or the remedies to the crisis, where the main difference is, instead of saying uh, the government plan said, if depositors' money isn't going to be given back, instead what we can do is give them parts of the banks that they 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 have the deposits in, so, which is the, the bail-in uh, process, which is not like the, the governance plan didn't say that we want this to happen all over the banking sector. They said that this was kind of the the last resort in the process of distributing losses or recovering losses. This would be the last thing, the last resort. Uh, just give them, instead of the deposits, give them stocks in the banks. And the banks obviously would definitely reject that. Under any circumstances, any banks would reject that because it's basically taking away stocks from the current shareholders and giving it to depositors. Instead, what the banks have proposed is to actually do the same thing but with the state's assets because they are blaming the state for not paying back the money so they're saying depositors should be instead of um, getting maybe all of their money back should have investment in stocks and in a company a private company that manages the state's assets so the banks are saying no you deal with these losses we're gonna we're not gonna sacrifice our profits and our uh, our shares on the long term to solve the crisis today your crisis you know they are kind of isolating the, themselves from it so what they really want is that there is an understatement of the financial losses. This is a very important part. There, that there is no no official haircut policy uh, on the rich, on the big uh, major depositors. That there is no deep restructuring of the banking sector and major change of ownership. That there is a selling and privatizing of state assets. And obviously, the thing that everyone needs, but mostly the banks, is the cash inflow because the banks will not survive unless the the unless Lebanon brings money from abroad. And this means IMF, this means SADR and other potential sources. And this item specifically takes us to the political agenda of the banks, which is to have a government that is very friendly to the West and very friendly to Gulf to Gulf countries because. The banking system in Lebanon, and plenty of studies have been written about that, the banking system in Lebanon is an extension of the global financial system and a, a place for recycling a lot of dollars from the Gulf, uh, and, and it relies heavily on dollars and what the Fed does in its whole survival and continu continuity. So the banks have real interest in having a government, not this government, and having actually a government that is much closer to the West and uh, not opposed, not fiercely opposed by the West allies in Lebanon. Right. This is sort of like the typical, you know, March 14th dream, which let's face it, a lot of the bankers are sympathetic to that side. Yeah. And even those who might have personally might have different political opinions and might be 
very critical of the West or Gulf countries. I mean, their class interest uh, says that, you know, they have to have extensions and they have to have good connections with the West because there is no alternative currently for them for that. So uh, it's clear that, you know, their class interest kind of dictates a political positioning on them. And this is what's bringing the banks together, together because if what we know about the banks is that they are mostly controlled or linked to different political groups in Lebanon. And these different groups are are not on the same spot of this political spectrum. So they have very different political positioning. For example, many are connected to FPM versus many of, of others connected to Future or to Birri, etc. So despite this kind of diversity in terms of political affiliation, there seems to be a very clear thing bringing them together, which is their interest as a, an economic lobby and therefore the interests of their owners and their major depositors as well. And, and I would also add to this that it seems as though th this is sort of like March 14th on steroids a bit, because it's sort of like you, know, you take the you know Western orientation and all of that, and then you add to it, oh, but we want to preserve the status quo. We don't want any changes to the ruling elite. We don't want you to take away any of our money. We don't want you to take away any of our power. If you do take away some of our money, you should give us you know, state assets in return for it. it, it and in that way, it seems as though the, there's a lot more appeal there. Status quo, keep, you know, the the current political players sort of in power, keep the banks and, and the current uh, political economy the same as it's been for the past 30 years. And it seems as though that's been quite uh, successful because this week it seems as though the FPM or parts of the FPM definitely, you know, came down on the side of the ABL. So you, uh, whether that is uh, Eli Firzli talking about Hariri and bringing him back. And defending uh, the banks on his, uh, on uh, he appeared on the show of Marcel Ghan in the most famous TV show, talk show in the country. And he was defending the banks and saying how the banks are actually victims of the state. And like he, the same guy and the same day is uh, calling for Hariri's return and defending the banks. <laughs> you can see the connections here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or if you look at uh, Kanaan, uh, who you mentioned earlier, the, the, uh, the MP who is with the FPM, very senior member of the FPM, who is also the leader of the Finance and Budget Committee in Parliament, and who put together this sort of like counter numbers argument that like, oh, the government numbers are wrong. Our numbers are right. We've restudied it. We know what the losses really are. Well, that wasn't just Kanan. It was Kanan, and it's important because he is such a senior member of the FPM. But also, who else was there at, at some of those meetings? You have Yassine Jabber, who is a uh, a heavyweight, another heavyweight in parliament, uh, who, who caucuses with the Amal movement. You had Nicolas Nahas, who is also a heavyweight, who is sort of Najim Meati's uh, right-hand man on a lot of these matters. Uh, Rola Tabish, who is a future movement heavyweight, uh, was at a lot of these. So you see all of these, you know, and, and these are not like the weak parliamentarians who don't really know what they're doing, but get sent because of representation purposes. No, these are like parliamentarians who, whether you agree or disagree with them, you you do have to uh, respect them because they, they know uh, a lot of what they're talking about and they put in the work. And and this broad spectrum came together under Kanaan to basically fight against the government plan. Yeah. Including Which, including people from March 8th, right? So not just the FBM, but right. all, you know. And and the sponsorship of this work, of Kanaan's work, uh, is very interesting, like that Berri pushed for this work. To, so if you, if you think about it now, in the government, the two most influential forces, uh, political forces, apart from Hezbollah, obviously, are Amal and FPM. 
امل اف بي ام ار لايك امل كنترولز سم كي مينستريز سبيشلي ذا فاينانس مينستري ويتش هاز ذا بيج ون اوف ذا بيجست رول ان ذا جفرمنت ان ذا ابكومينج بيريود ابكومينج بيريود اند اف بي ام كنترول ا لوت اوف مينستريز از ويل اند كنترول بيسيكلي ذا ديستني اوف ذا جفرمنت اند بوث اوف ذيم فيري سينيور بيبل ان ذيس ان ذيس بلوكس ار انفولد اور وير انفولد ان ذيس بارلمنتري كوميتي that basically sabotaged the government so the government's plan and the government's numbers so it's very clear that people from inside the government there's a ten to, there's a decision to change to basically completely challenge what diabs uh, was looking for uh, with his advisors and to push for a very different plan from the one that the government of government officially is uh, uh, accepted because the numbers uh, proposed by the parliamentary committees for the financial losses are almost exactly similar to uh, the banks and bdl's numbers which means that you know they are if this me- if if they support the numbers it means they support partly the solutions as well the policy implications yeah 100% and and i mean that that that's i think the big takeaway right that uh, seems as though we see the banks winning yeah and to and to also think of political rhetoric what we saw or or political discourse what we saw during the october 17 uh, uprising is that the banks were losing so much credibility and so much legitimacy right no one defends the banks anymore people suddenly realized that the banks are actually part of the oligarchy part of the ruling establishment in lebanon so the banks were at the weakest position probably ever in the history of lebanon and they they were at the spotlight and then gradually you started hearing all of these discourses that were not directly related to the banks but eventually now they are converging to support the bank's interests you saw the focus on the free uh, the free market economy of lebanon right by really so explicitly but by other people as well including jaja uh, in one of his press conferences including bashara butr sarrai the maronite patriarch the head of the the maronite church so like major figures basically talking about this that there there is a threat to the free market economy the the nature of the lebanese economy and what does that really mean it means that there is a plan by people in the state to basically lay hand on the banking sector this is what really it means because even rai said it clearly he said you know we should not touch the the the, the free market nature of the lebanese economy or and at its core the banking system in lebanon so what we see is a clear attempt to kind of create this public discourse that uh, uses this free economy a uh, free market economy kind of you know as a scapegoat or uh, as something under threat in order to protect uh, the policies that serves the banks and uh, there's a lot of you know a lot of mentioning of laying the hand on the banking sector or changing the nature of the banking sector and this relates to some sectarian things as well because there's this idea that or this uh, interest in maintaining a certain sectarian distribution in the banking sector itself and the government's plan by allowing bail-ins and depositors turning the dep- deposits into stocks and banks challenges the current ownership structure of the banks and some people are saying oh this will shake or will, will basically change the sectarian dynamics and will allow one sect to be more powerful than other sects in the banking sector and what this means basically is the shias will take over the banks this is how you can understand it in lebanese politics to the extent that nasrallah had to comment on it directly in one of his speeches saying we know that this is not uh, possible we will not lay our hand on the bank and this is not in the interest of lebanon etc so hasbollah recognizes that the banking sector in lebanon has different political requirements or yeah the requirements for its political for its survival are different politically from hasbollah's own preferences etc uh, it, and it's interesting that you mentioned hasbollah here because what you what we see with all of this 
is that, you know, Hezbollah has been accused of being the ones against the limit, against the banks, all of this stuff. And now all of a sudden we have their ally, the FPM and their ally, Berri, very definitely basically coming out and supporting the banks and and doing things like ruling out a forensic audit, which would uncover corruption at BDL. Hezbollah now has to decide whether they're going to once again go along with all of the rest uh, of these people with their allies and basically give them cover for staying corrupt or whether they put their foot down and say, no, we need a forensic audit. No, we, uh, you know, you, you have to start treating the depositors more fairly, stuff like that. We haven't seen that foot come down yet. We, we haven't, we, ha we don't have any evidence whatsoever that Hezbollah has different considerations than, say, Birri, when it comes yeah. to real politics. Yeah, yeah. So this is a theory still, right? This is a hypothesis mm. that everyone carries around that Hezbollah is just tolerating allies. To me, it sounds like, you know, they're just doing the same shit, but doing it more more intelligently by by, by, <laughs> by making it seem that they're well, not, that, they're that, not approving. That counts for something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but really, when you when you look at Hezbollah's actual political practice, where, yeah. were the, where, were, where did Hezbollah ever challenge very seriously the political class in Lebanon or any on anything? And please let any political science in the world convince me that Hezbollah, that had Hezbollah decided to actually remove Salami, he would have still survived during the, the recent few months in Lebanon. I mean, when everyone was telling, was saying, okay, Salami is a corrupt guy, leave the, leave the central bank, whatever. And Hezbollah clearly criticizing Salami, if they were very serious about this criticism, they would have probably had been able to, you know, get the fruit of it in politics and appoint someone else who is closer to them. I think we can understand that Hezbollah knows what the limits are in terms of what it can control in Lebanon. And there are things that Hezbollah doesn't want to take over because they know that they can't manage. And one of those things is the banking sector. So with like all other political forces, they will try to get as big a share as possible in whatever uh, resolution to the crisis. They will try to protect their, their bourgeois allies, their capitalists, the capitalists who work in their, uh, who are part of their networks. They will probably try to get, uh, you know, several banks closer to them after losing Jamal Trust Bank, etc. So they have some interest in the banking sector, but there, uh, there is no point, I think, where Hezbollah would realistically uh, take over. Because really what we're seeing in Lebanon today is like a very clear story. There is no way to resolve the crisis without either basically stepping on the bank's neck and like suppressing them completely or reaching a compromise, a deal with them. There's no way because they control people's livelihoods. The BDL now controls poverty rate with by controlling the exchange rate. They control everything related to the economy today because everything is relying relying on confidence and on money and, and dollars. So these people are kind of, they, they have the best way to blackmail the government by saying, basically, we have our hands on the necks of everyone in the country. You, you, there's only one of two ways, either reaching a deal with them and the deal with them will be more biased towards their interests 100%. than the current government plan. Yeah. And an opposition, a confrontation with them would, in my opinion, to impose a different will on the banks in Lebanon and the central bank. You can either do that by taking over government and changing, for example, the central bank governor and doing all sorts of decisions to basically clean the banking sector out of your opponents, which is one way to do it that Hezbollah is clearly not interested in doing it and no other political force can do it, in my opinion. Or you will get to, uh, you, this will escalate into a confrontation that is 
much larger and might take like actual violent forms. So what we, uh, what what we're seeing now, I think, is uh, a convergence, as we were saying, around the bank's interests, which can only lead to one thing, in my opinion. It will lead to, first of all, what is what. I'm definitely sure that will happen is that there must there will be a compromise on the plans and on the numbers in a way that satisfies the bank's interests and the uh, and makes a bit of sense economically and fiscally as well if I think this is the most likely outcome of what's happening today be it in with Diab's government or a new government but what we're also seeing now in terms of Jumblat saying I support the overthrowing of the government Firzli paving the way for Hariri and attacking the government and this consolidation around the interests and the numbers of the banks is that there will probably be a different government that is closer to the West. And there's, they ha- it doesn't seem that, you know, Hezbollah or Amal or anyone is interested in, uh, in, you know, insisting on Diab and this government for so long because it clearly doesn't have the support of BDL and the banks. And uh, regionally, in terms of regional politics, Saudi seems to be more involved now with many visits by Salemi and by Salim Sfer, the head of the, the banking lobby. So it might be translated into some sort of uh, political compromise as well. We, I mean, this is all speculation now because we don't know really uh, what this, what kind of real weight Saudis have. But the whole talks about Hariri coming back and uh, in line with what's happening financially seems to be converging to that point so for a government that is more friendly to the West and more friendly to the banks. Uh, I, I just want to uh, wrap up, though, by saying that this entire process, yes, the, the banks seem to be winning the the argument here. Saleme is beating Diab, it seems, right? If this happens and if it comes to fruition, though, it absolutely relies on funding from the IMF, Cedra, the Gulf states, stuff like that. And all of this stuff, to me, it still just seems unlikely that those billions and billions of dollars will materialize. Uh, and without that, their plan, like it already, I think, probably doesn't really work. And it really doesn't work. Uh, and they would be caught holding the bag uh, if they're suddenly back in power and then things turn catastrophic. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree because the, the, the direction in which the banks are pushing today is already very reckless in terms of the policies that they are seeking because they don't want an actual solution to, this, to the crisis. They want postponing the, the, the crisis. Yeah, keep the status quo, 100%. Yeah, and kick yeah. the can down the road. And this yep. doesn't work. And this means with austerity and with the conditions that might be imposed by the IMF, etc. This means more misery in the country, more social and economic deterioration and no economic growth or development in the next, what, 20 years? Like, can you imagine where and how the Lebanese economy would kickstart according to the bank's plan or according to the government's plan without like a serious uh, strategy for investment in productive sectors, etc., which doesn't exist. It's impossible to imagine it. So I feel like the banks are even taking us in a direction that no one will benefit from, absolutely no one can benefit from on the long term. This recklessness is basically motivated by by protecting the mostly medium-term profits. So everyone who is pushing, they are fighting for their own interests. But on the long term, I think any like any imaginable compromise between the interests, the vested interests in the country, is bad for the economy and bad for people. And this is why, really, um, and this is maybe I can I can end on this very positive note that there is absolutely no hope for a good resolution of the crisis, in my opinion, anytime soon. And there's no hope of very positive change in the country anytime soon because. All interests that fight among each other, be it the government or the banks and BDL, etc., and all these different political factions, 
no one really prioritizes the, the interests of the working class of the country, the middle class, the small uh, businesses, none of that. 100%. And, you know, what we saw this week, it's just going to get worse in terms of food, hunger, supplies, suicides, all of those things. Unfortunately, I'm like you. I, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. All right. On this... Uh, <laughs> on that very, very depressing note. <laughs> very bright note. Um, Have a wonderful day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be back with another episode of uh, the podcast next week. And uh, until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red, And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.